Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Downstage Center today, Stephen Flaherty and Lynn Ahrens. They are the respectively composer and lyric writer, lyricist, of shows that you may have heard of, Once on This Island, My Favorite Year, the Tony winner Ragtime, Susical, the musical, and now a new show off-Broadway at Lincoln Center at the, Vivian, at the uh, Mitzi Newhouse uh, Theater at Lincoln Center, Dessa Rose. Welcome, Lynn, Stephen, welcome. Hi, great, great to be here. Dessa Rose. I could describe what it is, a story about a, uh, a slave pre-Civil War and a, and a white woman who harbors uh, fugitives uh, from slavery. Tell, if you would, tell us what, what inspired you to do Dessa Rose and what, what's, what's the show all about? It's so hard to encapsulate what this show is about. Um, it, it, it's it's absolutely dense and rich and um, rather epic. Uh, it's an adventure story and it's a romance and um, it's a story of a, a very deep and strange friendship between two women. These two women actually lived once upon a time, um, although they never met in real life. But one was a slave who... Um, was uh, took part in a slave rebellion and was sentenced to be hung. And, and because she was pregnant, her life was, um, uh, you know, she was kept alive until she gave birth. And she is the title character. And she is the title character, Dessa, Dessa Rose. Rose. So Dessa Rose, that, that woman actually existed. Um, and the other woman actually existed and lived on an isolated farm and gave haven to runaway slaves. And the author of the original novel... Um, which is also titled Dessa Rose. The author's name is Shirley Ann Williams. She d- wanted to know what would happen if these two women had really met. And so she wrote a story, wrote a, a little novel, uh, imagining what would happen if their lives actually intersected. And um, I read this novel, I guess it was when it first came out in about 1986, and I just fell in love with this amazing story. There's almost no way to in- to, to tell what it is because it's so unexpected and um, and deep and exciting. And I I had this book on my shelf for, for a long, long time and finally thought maybe it would be something to present to Stephen. Yeah. When did you decide to present it? That's the question. If, if you Because you, you've read the book very early in your partnership. Yeah. I, I read it and I had it on my bookshelves and I think it, uh, I think we, we feel it was somewhere around 1991 when we were looking around for new things to write. I, I pre- presented it to him. And, well, and I Stephen, was frankly terrified yeah. <laughs> by this particular novel. Uh, uh, it's it's an incredibly moving story, uh, but the the subject matter. I, I thought, how can I possibly tell this story? And also the way it's written, it's beautifully written, but it's so densely packed, and there's so many uh, action scenes in it. Uh, if it, in other words, if it were a film, there would be a, a lot of sort of chases and a lot of on the road scenes, and I, I just couldn't see how it could be adapted for the stage. And I, I also think, though, more importantly, I think emotionally, uh, I wasn't ready to tackle uh, su- such a rich tale at, at that point uh, in terms of subject matter and just sort of the emotional uh, quality the of that. Of so it. I said to Lynn, I said, it's a beautiful book. I don't know quite how it could be adapted, but uh, you know, I certainly enjoyed reading it. And then over the years, uh, Lynn kept saying, this story, Dessa Rose, she says, I can't... I can't uh, uh, forget these characters they keep coming back that is a, it's a story it's a story of not seen and uh, uh, along the, along the way uh, we, we wrote the show Ragtime uh, which is also a very epic uh, tale uh, on American themes and I think once I had uh, written that score I thought oh I, I think I know how I could potentially write the score for Dessa Rose it it's, uh, takes place uh, in 1847 so it's an earlier time in American history and it's southern so it's a different uh, combination of musical styles but I thought uh, after tackling Ragtime that maybe uh, this was something that I could begin to look at uh, so, so Lynn actually uh, took it upon herself to uh, write perhaps 60 pages uh, of of text, uh, both lyrics and uh, spoken text, almost like an opera libretto, and presented it to me in the summer of 2001 as a gift, saying, you know, this is my vision of the show. <laughs> this is the last time I'm going to bring this up, but here are 60 pages of Dessa Rose. And it was in- incredibly beautiful, and for the first time I could see how how it could be adapted for the stage. So I just uh, read and reread uh, the the material, and I fell in love with it. And after all of that time, like almost a decade of talking about the show, uh, when the music started coming, it came very, very quickly. And uh, Lynn and I were separate for that particular summer, so when we uh, 
met uh, again in New York City, I said, well, I have about 50 minutes of music from Dessa Rose. And uh, so it, it was sort of uh, my responding to her vision, and here's my vision. And uh, it was a very exciting and different way for us to so work. So you just kind of went off on your own and yeah. started writing yeah, music. Yeah, we, we had decided to take the summer off. We uh-huh. both needed a rest uh-huh. from, from <laughs> show business and from one mm-hmm. another. Mm-hmm. So we went our separate ways for a summer. But I had been um, writing this uh, kind of chunk of material in the cracks because I just felt I really was so interested in the in the story and I, I wanted Stephen to be able to see it the way I was seeing it and we really don't work that way normally but I, I just kind of took it upon myself and you know as he said before we parted for the summer to go our separate vacation ways you know I handed it to him and you know it was a little scary but uh, it, it worked out. But how about when he then first presented the music to you what was your reaction very scared it was you You, know you were were afraid to listen i was afraid to listen because Mm -hmm. i thought you know what if i led him down the wrong path and what Uh what if i don't like what he wrote and what if what if i made him waste his time and what if it's really not as good as i think it is (laughs) oh my god i haven't heard a note and what is it going to be and and i I actually spoke to graciela danielle our uh, director and choreographer of desiro's uh uh, she's an old friend. Uh, we did uh, Ragtime and Once on this Island together as well. I, I spoke to her yesterday, and I said, I've never entered a project uh, in uh, more in a state of fear, uh, you know, because there are so many things. I didn't know how I would tackle it. I didn't know musically uh, how I was going going to pull it off because it's actually almost uh, operatic. There's there's almost a continuous flow of music, both sung and underscore, uh, in the piece. And... Uh, Sort of what I've learned is that starting from a place of fear is not necessarily a bad thing because it means you haven't done it before. So you're sort of out of your comfort comfort zone. You're exploring new territory, and and that's really how how I felt working on Desa Rose. Well, it's interesting. On that point, when, the other night when I saw it, it was about 25 minutes into the show when the audience had the first opportunity to applaud. Right. It was so continuous and so intense. There was just no little button that right. we could applaud on. That was a choice. We yeah, we, yeah. we just thought – you know, we're not writing a, a traditional show. We're not writing a show with tunes that you, you know, stop and ask for applause. And, and we're very aware of that when we're writing any show, really. Do we want them to applaud here? Do we not want them to applaud here? Sometimes they start applauding in places you really don't want. And then you have to figure out how to cut the applause off, you know, before they even start. And with this show, um, it just wants to speed forward and tell this extraordinary tale and just keep unfolding and unfolding and unfolding and it's an uncomfortable show you know it's it's there are really uncomfortable moments in it and you don't want to ask for applause uh at those moments so there are certain resting places and certain places where people absolutely do applaud but what we find is um it's really interesting to to be in previews right now because the audiences are so consistent they are intent and they are uh, they lean forward. They listen very hard. And at the end, there's this utter outburst. And I think it's because we have prevented them from, from reacting for so long. <laughs> right, you know? trying to really contain the, the emotion yeah. and the action. A- actually, from Lynn's really her first take of the first draft, uh, that, that libretto, it, it really did uh, read and felt to me more like uh, an opera libretto than uh, a standard musical libretto. And so I think I took I took that uh, into account in, in terms of writing this score where one piece uh, of music flows into the next the next piece and uh it, it was nervous uh nerve-wracking going into previews because uh i think in act one there are only three places for applause mm-hmm. you know and the rest of it is continuous music uh, it plays like an opera and uh i thought wow i have no idea if this is going to work or not so yeah. it was it i should was may exciting. i just add it, it's not an opera it is a musical there are you know the funny songs and everything it's really not an opera per se but it, it's very similar to a folk opera in a way because it is so through composed and and so dramatic but there are no sopranos in this show there are no sopranos <laughs> <laughs> we keep talking about the libretto and and one thing i was curious about is in your collaboration there have been the shows in which you have done the shows entirely together and lynn you have done the libretto and the lyrics and right. in other cases where you've had collaborators certainly terence mcnally for a couple of shows right. and and joe doherty for right. my favorite year how do you make the decision when it's just going to be the two of you and when you're going to have a partner or are there other people in some cases helping you to make that decision um, well, it depends. You know, with Ragtime, Terrence McNally was on the project before we were, and, you know, so that was not our decision to make, but, you know, we were so 
thrilled to be working with the great Terrence McNally, and and that was great. And you know, Joe Doherty is is fantastic. Um, you know, with with a man of no importance, we chose to do another show with Terrence because we love him so much, and he's so such a terrific and generous. Uh, playwright who offers up his words to the humble lyricist to, you know, take all the best moments and make them songs. But um, I think uh, when they're self-generated projects, the decision is kind of made by us at any rate. If we find a project, sometimes I think I can't write this myself. You know, I I, I don't have an affinity for this kind of language. And other times, like with um, Dessa Rose, I felt that the, there was so much welling up in me in terms of how these characters sounded. And, and there's so much information in the novel itself about how they talk and, you know, what they have to say and how they speak. And, and I just felt I could do it, and I felt I wanted to do it um, because it seemed so lyrical to me. I think lyricism is, is a key. In Once on this Island, uh, again, you know, you, you read the, the novel, and um, the very first opening lines of the novel are just sheer poetry. You know, there is an island where rivers run deep, where the sea sparkling in the sun earns it the name Jewel of the Antilles. And I thought, I can write this. So, you know, it it it, it, it kind of depends. And I, I feel personally that, you know, as I've um, continued to write and grow as a writer, um, I'm getting a little more confident with the spoken word. You know, I'm I, 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 no, I can write lyrics, but the spoken word has always been a little tricky for me. So uh, in Dessa Rose, I feel pretty happy with the spoken scenes as well as the sung ones. It's interesting that in Dessa Rose, uh, it's it's so different from a, from a traditional musical because in a traditional musical, you have the 11 o'clock number. And in Dessa Rose, you have the 11 o'clock scene, which is <laughs> – which is, and it's a terrific scene. Uh, and it's interesting because uh, the first time we played the entire – uh, piece through with with the company before we moved to the theater. We actually had th- we actually did have what we were considering the, the eleven o'clock number for the two main characters as well as two other songs right in the same area, and we wound up stripping all three songs and taking them and remo- removing them from the show. Them. All uh, in one day because in a cer- because girls. in a certain way this uh, duet for uh, the characters of Dessa Rose and Ruth. Uh, it sort of took the relationship too far, and they came, they came to a, a point of closure, and we felt it wasn't right for the story. We didn't want to resolve that relationship until literally the last word of the entire show. So we took away the 11 o'clock number, which, which you might think would be madness, but in a certain way it actually made the uh, drama of the show, especially the last section of, the, of Act 2, really come alive. Well, when you talk about choices like that in the same way that I asked about when do you bring in uh, a third writing collaborator, um, how do you come to the decision about a director? You certainly already mentioned that you've worked with Graciela Danielle several times. How, do, how does that come about for you? Again, is it a case of the producers or are there people you've really developed an affinity for and, and think of in relation to certain work of your own? It's, it's all of that. You know, it's, it's, it's very intuitive. It's intuitive. Yeah. You know, you, you try and see as much theater as you can so that you um, get a feeling of who's out there and who's, who, whose work you admire and, and, and what, what directors work you feel might, you know, go well with your own work. And, um, you know, in the case of Graziella Danielle, for example, um, we knew her work. And when we wrote Once on this Island, um, uh, we thought she might be perfect. And we met with her. And, and that was really one of her very first directing credits at that point. I believe that that's, maybe that's even right. I, I actually think it was maybe her second or, second or third. third. Yeah, but, but around that period of time, it was uh, we, we began developing it around 1988. Yeah. Uh, Graciela was doing these beautiful, beautiful dance pieces. And then she, she was very interested in, in the time of uh, telling stories through dance. So the pieces uh, that Graciela was working on at the time told stories through dance and music and she just began to add a few songs here and there uh there uh, you know not not really uh, with the with the songs necessarily uh telling the story but sort of commenting on the action and it seemed to us that this what we were doing on our own was the natural extension of what Graciela was working on uh by, by herself and it was just a, a perfect fit and 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 she's she's also really into uh, ensemble style pieces and uh, Once in this island is is uh, really an ensemble effort. Yeah, and she's she's just right marriage. for us, you know, and yeah. and I think vice versa. We just we we get along really well. We're, there's a completely open channel of communication, which is very important to us, and um, and her she just understands our work and understands how to make it come alive with very minimal, uh, you know, uh, stuff. You know, she's not a big believer in big sets and big 
costumes and big everything. And and we love that. We love her economy of, of storytelling, and we love the way um, she will never put a dance in just for the sake of doing a great dance, even though she can do that. But she just doesn't do that. She takes our work and is wonderful and And in the case of Dessa Rose, not a heavily choreographed show no, at but, all. And yet the whole show is a dance in some odd way. It just moves and moves and moves. I actually uh, – I've heard from people. I mean, I you know – people in the audience who come up to me after the show or whatever, they always mention her work because it's so extraordinary in its simplicity and in its delicacy and, and sensitivity and clarity. You know, she's she's on a bare stage, essentially. She's telling a story that goes from location to location and, and from time period to time period and from, uh, you know, 40 years hence to flashing back. It, it, it's extraordinary, and you never lost for a minute. Well, actually, the show is not choreographed in the traditional way of, say, a kick line or ballet right. sequence right. or all that, right. but there is some movement which is I think much akin to choreography just the stage movement it's it's stage it's stage yeah, movement absolutely. it's 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 beautiful beautiful yeah. uh staging and and the story's told with staging and lights and singing and and you know all now, that there's something about Graciela's choreography uh to to me the way the when you're looking at the piece visually it moves the way I hear hear the music you know it's it's just uh when I'm creating the music, I try to imagine it in my mind, and, and she takes uh, sort of what I'm seeing in my in, in my mind and, and just brings it uh, to to the stage. It's it's gorgeous. Now, Stephen, a moment ago you were talking about writing these eleven o'clock numbers, then yeah. an eleven o'clock scene, uh-huh. and then one day one of you said three numbers were cut in one day. Yeah, it's the morning of the long knives. Yeah, who, that was <laughs> that was that was a, an intense an intense twenty four hours. Who, whose, whose decision was that to cut those numbers? You know, we we were in rehearsal for. I guess it was three and a half weeks or so, and then and what happens is with a musical, you try and stage it as quickly as you possibly can, so that you can get the gist of it at the end, and you can do a run through the show. and see the arc and see how long it's running, which we had a concern about. We thought we may, might have a long show, and so we did our first run through, and it wasn't extremely long, but it was a little too long. It was about twenty minutes too long, and in twenty four hours, we sat down with Graziella and with. Um, and each other, and Andre Bishop ha- gave us his thoughts, and we... We just had a wonderful discussion, really, about the piece. Yeah, it was fantastic, and we, as Andre puts it in his lovely way, we had a, a pudding with too many raisins. <laughs> so we sat down and we cut some of the raisins out in 24 hours. We figured out which sequences were beautiful but needed to come out, um, and went in the next morning with our musical cuts made and our text cuts made and our change pages done. And we called all the actors who were affected in one by one and sat them down and said, well, we're going to cut your big number. Well, we're going to cut your big number too. And we we made a lot of cuts in one day that cut at least 20 minutes out of the show. And it was extraordinary because they were all beautiful moments and and most of them, all of them really weren't yeah. necessary. And, and for me, it wasn't even necessary ab- necessarily about running time. It was about what do we really need? What's vital to tell this particular yeah. story a- about focusing on, on what the story was. So so we did lose uh, two songs. We did lose a song that was uh, a subplot, which we which we then uh, wrote in a very economical scene that, that really accomplished... Uh, the same thing, and I think ultimately you know that you've made the right decision whenever uh, when you can see how the whole show plays and and how it feels. I have read comments by both of you that you are very much like people in a marriage, although you're not in real life, of course. But uh, that you're very different, but yet you get along. You yeah. have yeah. strengths Absolutely. and weaknesses that yeah. complement one another. Yeah, and we and fight. That, you know, and, just and, <laughs> and that Stephen has said about you, Lynn, that you can see things analytically and say this number gets cut or changed, or whatever. And Stephen, about yourself, you've said that you grow more attached to things. It takes more time for you to give something up. Was that the case? Well, it, it's interesting. I think. I think uh, you know, if you talk about where does music come from, it's uh-huh. this very mysterious thing. It's it's it's. Uh, uh, it's alchemy, and it, but it does come from a very emotional, deep place. And uh, in order to, to write music, I think you have to put yourself in the uh, in the mind uh, of, of the character. And uh, so, I, I think when it comes to cutting and doing those things, I think I'm the mo- more emotional <laughs> of the two of us, you know, because I have these strong emotional attachments. And I think the the difficult thing is, but but I, I've learned it over the years, is that in looking at the the show objectively, you have to find some way. Uh, that you can uh, be very analytical and sort of separate uh, separate yourself and your p- personal emotions from 
from the material. I think I'm I'm just as emotional and just as attached to everything. But I think the difference is that I Stephen falls in love with each moment that he has written. Uh-huh. I fall in, I am I'm passionately in love with the whole show, and so my my concern is that the whole show works before any of the individual moments. You know, and and once the whole show begins to work and begins to be you know, a thing of beauty, then I become attached to the individual moments. But at, until that point, I really am, I, I feel like if they have to go, they have to go. It could be the best song we've ever written. We'll do it in our club act, you know, someday <laughs> when we learn to sing. Uh, and, I, you know. I actually think what's interesting is, is Lynn tends to see the wide angle lens, you know, she, she, she sees the, the broad view of the show. And I, I tend to, I tend to be really super focused of, you know, all, of all, all the details within the show. And I tell actually, a photo. Tell mm-hmm. a photo. And I actually think that that's actually really wonderful for a collaboration because, uh, because, uh, you know, we're looking at the same thing, but from, from different viewpoints. Uh, now, Lynn, do, you, do you attribute any of your, your abilities to your background, which comes out of advertising? You were yeah. an advertising agency executive I was. before you got into this I was show many business. things before yeah. show business, oh. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so w- in, in, your, in your former life yes. as a senior vice president or whatever you yeah. were of an ad agency, you had to look at things, I guess, analytically and make changes in... Well, you know, I, yeah, but I think, well, for me... Um, Best, the best job and the only job I ever had was my first job out of college, and that was at an advertising agency. And, and during my seven years there, I learned to work with actors. I learned to work in recording studios. I learned to write with great economy because, you know, you have to get your work into 30 seconds or 60 seconds. I also started to write songs there, which was the Schoolhouse Rock um, experience, you know, which, t- again, taught me economy of writing and so forth. So all of those things, I think... Um, taught me about uh, somehow impacted on what I do now. Um, and I, I am a very economical writer. You know, I love good storytelling, and I love it when every word counts and every beat in the show counts and, and there's nothing wasted or flabby. And I think that's kind of a mindset that perhaps I, I learned to, to fine-tune a little bit in advertising. I do want to come back to your other experience and how you got started, but before we move off of, <laughs> of Dessa Rose and as we've been talking about the collaborative process and the collaborators you brought in, you mentioned a few minutes ago Andre Bishop, and it strikes yeah. me mm. that in Andre, who is now the artistic director of Lincoln Center Theater, but previously was the artistic director of Playwrights Horizons, you are a, a composing team that has what is now probably the rare experience of doing multiple shows with the same producer. By my quick count in my head, five shows, five yeah. shows. Five with, shows Andre. with Andre. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, how has that worked for you? Because that's not the norm. I, I know. We're, we're, Every we're, show, for, usually for musical writers, yeah. is a one-off. We could say it in unison. We're, we're so really blessed. lucky and blessed. Yeah. It just, we, I don't know how we lucked out that way. We just We, we, we met, we, we met uh, Andre Bishop and Ira Weitzman uh, in, in the mid-'80s, and they were, uh, they, they came across, uh, it was actually Ira at first, came uh, across uh, a presentation that we were doing uh, of, of, songs from an original musical and he loved the songs and he's, he said do you have more and you know and uh you know in my fantasy world i thought someday a producer's going to come out, out of, of the, the woodwork and, and say hey kid great tune you, you know do you have any more and it was literally <laughs> you know what happened and through ira we met we met andre and uh andre produced uh, our first show lucky stiff uh at playwrights horizons in 1988 and uh, s- since then, we- we've done uh, four more shows with Andre uh, at Lincoln Center. Or a- actually, no, uh, no, one more playwrights, yeah, and then three more at, at Lincoln Center. And and, and the-, the wonderful thing is uh, uh, Andre is really ab- about supporting the writer, and not only the writer's one sh- show, but uh, but also the, the career uh, of the writer. And he uh, he loves the fact, I think, that, that we never repeat ourselves, that we try uh wildly different uh subject matter and uh that 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 we try to stretch ourselves in different directions and uh the the fact that we're presenting Dessa Rose which is this incredible um, emotional uh and dramatic work uh in a season that has mostly comedy you know i mean the fact that andres uh is not saying oh well that's not the style this season you know the fact that he's saying this is an exciting show and it's it's a, it's great that you are writing it and i want to support that i mean it's incredibly rare 
So now to jump back, because I I really was fascinated, Lynn, that you were working on the Schoolhouse Rock shows. <laughs> and in fact, we even know your singing from some of those. Yeah. But I guess we should reveal that it is your voice that taught us how to sing the preamble to the Constitution <laughs> and uh, explained to us that a noun is a person, place, yes. or thing. <laughs> And is that about the era when the two of you met? Because I'm told you did collaborate no, on one of those. No, or that not at all. That? No, I, I was, I was, in I was the, still, still in Pittsburgh. He was in diapers, I, I was believe. In diapers. In <laughs> no, I was, I, was a, I, was, oh, I was in Pittsburgh. I had not come no, to the city. That was yet. my first um, my first professional songwriting gig. And, and in fact, you were doing not just the lyrics, but was, you were doing the whole thing. You actually was, were writing the music as well. I was writing the tunes. I was singing the tunes. I was, yeah, I was... Um, playing them on guitar, and uh, I have rather funny and fond memories of dragging my guitar up to ABC television and p- presenting my Schoolhouse Rock songs for Michael Eisner. <laughs> I mean, it was wild. Those were wild days. But it was my first job out of college to work at this advertising agency called McCaffrey & McCall, which is no longer in existence. But they um, created the, the, the show, Schoolhouse Rock, and sold it to ABC. And um, I used to bring my guitar into work because I and play it on lunch hour because I was somewhat bored, I suppose. And uh, one day somebody came over and asked if I'd like to try writing one of these songs, and I did. The preamble was the first one I wrote, and uh, wrote a lot after that too. But um, but yeah, that was that was a fun so time. So you were working on the creative side of the agency, not yeah. the. I was a copywriter. Not, not, not the buying side. No, no, no. <laughs> no, I was a copywriter, and that led to, to um, writing lyrics for jingles, and uh, eventually I left the agency and became a jingle writer and singer. Well, any jingles we'd remember? Oh, probably. I'm, I'm actually the voice of, what would you do for a Klondike bar, <laughs> if you know that? <laughs> and uh, you, you, Bounty, you, the quicker picker-upper, I wrote that. And, uh, <laughs> no, I don't think so. Not today. <laughs> so how did the two of you come together? We met in a songwriting workshop, very famous um, songwriting workshop called the BMI Musical Theater Workshop, which was started by Lehman Engel. Um, and uh, I had applied just as a lyricist because I felt that I, with my five chords that I knew on guitar, probably wasn't quite up to uh, the task of, of writing a musical, at least the musical part of it. And um, Stephen applied as a, a composer and lyricist. Yeah, I, I yeah. think it's interesting that Lynn and I, uh, in our previous lives, we, we, actually, both, uh, we actually both wrote uh, music and lyrics, which I think is a, a really interesting thing because I think I understood uh, the craft of lyric writing, even though I don't do it very much uh, any, any anymore, and I think Lynn really understood uh, how music uh, serves uh, a, a lyric and uh, makes makes the the word come alive. And uh, so uh, I, I uh, studied composition, uh, but I was working uh, on my own uh, in Cincinnati, Ohio. I went to the College Conservatory of Music there, which is actually where I met Lehman Engel. He was coming in to do. Uh, uh, a master class for uh, the musical theater program uh, for the actors. And while he was there, he said, uh, is there any student composition? Is there any student work? And I was actually, at the time, luckily, uh, staging my first uh, musical. So uh, not, not only did I have the songs ready, but I had actors who could sing them ready, which was fortunate because I am a horrible singer. So, <laughs> so, uh, That's not he, true, he, he, So he, he heard... Uh, uh, these songs, and he actually said, "Come to New York, you know, drop this, you know, just drop so out straight of school." Out of college. Yeah, well, he wanted me to, to 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 basically, you know, become a dropout and you know come to New York okay. and be in BMI, BMI. And I said, "No, I'd really like to finish this education, but uh, I'd love to to uh, be part of your workshop and you know study with you whenever I graduate." And a- actually, sort of the irony of the situation is is Layman Angle died the week that I was moving to oh, wow. uh, New York City, so. Uh, I, I never got the opportunity to be in the workshop with him, uh, but the workshop uh, did continue and, and is continuing today. And uh, so I met Lynn really the first month that I had moved to New York City in the fall of 1982. And within six months, we were writing together, and uh, we've been writing together ever since. But it was six years before you got a show on together until once on the uh, – Yeah, uh, we, 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 had a, we had an early show uh, based on the film Bedazzled, uh, the Peter Cook, Dudley Moore f- uh, film. And we could never uh, get, get, the, get rights. the rights. And that, that's, the, that's the show that uh, – 
that I sort heard, of that I heard, from. and yeah. it sort of became our calling card. It was, it was. But you know really what? We did have one show. show that nobody knows about before Lucky Stiff. It was produced by TheaterWorks USA, and we oh. wrote a children's show for them, a, 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 a one-hour-long version, sort of a contemporary version of The Emperor's New Clothes, which was a fantastic experience for us because it really was, you know, professional production. It was a commission, and it's worth noting that TheaterWorks has a great tradition yeah. of catching catching young teams writers on yeah. the way they up. They sure do. They're fantastic. They really break out. They, they're just great. And it was a wonderful experience. Jay Harnick and um, Charlie Hull were running it at the time. And um, uh, Jay Harnick, of course, is, is Sheldon's brother. And, um, you know, it was just quite an experience to see your show done at Town Hall with all of these kids in the audience. You know, I don't know how many, 1,200 kids or yeah, something. Yeah, incredibly packed. vocal. <laughs> and, yeah, and, you you know, it was, it was such a great experience because you got – well, we got to work with – you know, a real director and real actors and, and real sets and costumes and lights. And it was our first experience with that. And also our first experience with an audience where you realize, I actually realized it later on, that children aren't just as valid an audience as adults. They just, their reactions are exactly the same, only bigger. So, you know, when adults are bored with a portion of a show, they'll, you know, rustle about and they'll look at their programs or their watches or they'll cough. And children just get up, run up and down the aisles and they scream and yell. But it's the same <laughs> thing. And when they're interested and, and you know, into the story, children and adults alike, they lean forward, they're very intent, they're very quiet, uh, and they pay attention. So, you know, we learn to read audiences from that experience. And Do you recall what the first song was you wrote together? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was a class assignment, and it's a notoriously bad song. Uh, but, but, but the idea was uh, <laughs> that it had to be a, a duet for two people uh, uh, singing in different time places. Uh, different places. So, so, so it was about uh, writing an ad for uh, the village voice. A you personal know, ad. A, a personal ad. Uh-huh. And... Uh, it, you know, it's an interesting thing because it was, you know, it's, it's the first time you write a song together, uh, you're coming from totally different places. It's like a blind date. You know, you, you don't, you, you know that you respect and are excited by the other person, but you don't know if the chemistry is going to be there. And at, at that time, uh, I came from a very sort of uh, academic background where I would tend to compose things and I would write things out and and score things out. And Lynn came from a much more improvisatory background where uh, she was almost like, hey, let's make up a song. And, and she, she denies this, but at one point she said, so play something, you know, and <laughs> in, in the room. And I had never uh, really written with another person in the room. And it's like it's basically, you know, like stripping in front of somebody, you know, putting putting yourself on the line and trying to uh, have the muse uh, sort of sit on your shoulder in time and, and create something with another person in the room. And it's something I had never done, but it, it was a wonderful experience for me. And e- even though the first song was not destined to be a classic, I think <laughs> the uh, the process of what, how we approached a song and uh, s- uh, sort of the, the different ways uh, that, that we approached uh, music and lyrics, I think were both very different and, and very complementary. And it, and it was... I think an exciting uh, way way to, to to go about writing a song, and so can, we can you play us a few bars of that that long ago. Oh, you song? know what? I don't. I, I remember it. I, no, it, it was not a memorable <laughs> song. <laughs> I do have the sheet music somewhere. I remember there were, there, it was very perky, <laughs> but not necessarily. What, what, what about the first song you wrote for a show? Not uh, not in this class as an exercise but the first real song you well I, I think I think uh, in, in, in writing Lucky Stiff I, I remember the first song from Lucky Stiff that was actually performed uh, publicly and it was a song called Times Like This uh, and it was the first time that that we got consistent laughs uh, through the song. Yeah. And it was a song that, 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 oddly enough, started out as a comedy number and then became a ballad. And the people were laughing at the beginning and crying at the end. And uh, we, we did it at a benefit on uh, for Playwrights Horizons at Green Street. And uh, it was it was really exciting. So that, that was sort of, our, I think, the first song where what we were doing together really gelled and, you know, became memorable. Lynn, do you want to sing some of this? Oh, my not... gosh. I never remember my own lyrics. Um, oh, gosh. Just a friendly face. We'll just do Thank you. Okay, okay, thanks. Oh, We're here in the living room. Oh, I have so. to sing. It's so early. Um, a friendly face, the kind of face that melts you with a grin. The kind of eyes that welcome you the minute you walk in. A friendly glance you simply can't 
refuse At times like this A girl could use A dog And then it goes from there And I remember Cut. writing that particular song uh, the, the word dog doesn't rhyme with any other any other word in in the the song and Lynn said can you do that can you have a, a title you know where there it doesn't rhyme and I said I said I think we can I said it's so unexpected and it comes out of left field and, and then we can sort of build upon I should have set that, that song up it's about a woman sitting in a nightclub without a date and everybody else has a date <laughs> yeah. and she's a dog fanatic anyway well, you're mentioning dates <laughs> you mentioned blind dates and I want to ask you mm. know when teams come together sometimes you hear stories of, of people who were searching for a long Long time for collaborative partners. Had you worked with other people? And of course, there was one point in your collaboration where you took a break, and Lynn, you worked with Alan Menken. But I'm just curious had you tried out other partners? Was there a lot of other dating? Well, you know, my background being in, you know, having come from sort of a more of a pop background than Stephen, I worked with a lot of different terrific composers you know people we would write songs together and we'd get our songs try and get our songs recorded and so forth and and um even in the bmi workshop when we first met steven was self-contained he was writing his own lyrics and his own music so and didn't collaborate with anybody but i worked with a number of different people that first year all of whom i loved and all of whom were really really talented but um you know when i met steven uh you know, it just gelled. It just there was a wonderful synergy there between his work and mine, and and we just enjoyed the process. And even when I wrote Christmas Carol, we were continuing to write together. It wasn't like we took a break from each other. It was just that an opportunity presented itself that I felt I really could not turn down. And you know, so I worked with Alan Menken on that. But meanwhile, you know, he had other projects going. And, you know, since then, Stephen has done a couple of other things as well. So, you know, we're not married, literally or figuratively, but we are a, a team that I, I hope and think will just yeah. continue on for, I, I forever. I think the key with, with any great marriage or partnership is, you know, you have to realize that the individuals grow as individuals, but then also you grow as a team. And I, I think the, the thing with uh, working with Lynn is uh, each project that we do is is so different. And I get to explore, you know, different parts of you know my musical self, and uh, I, th- I think the, the the fact that we keep trying new new things and pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone—that's actually the the thing that I think really keeps things fresh. You know, and, and I think a lot of songwriters find that with other uh, working with other lyricists that, that that's their way of you know keeping it fresh. But the fact that we work with one another so well and can keep it uh, just as fresh, you know, within the relationship is you know I think that the key that you know. That, the, the reason, really, why we keep uh, writing with one another. Well, let me we have a pursue great that too. because you you do seem – your shows are all set at particular times and particular places, which forces you to, to, to explore that. How much do you have to research a musical idiom of whether it's 1950s New York or 1840s right. America or – Turn of the century, America. Well, I, I think for me personally, uh, I, I love all ki- all kinds of music. I mean, I really grew up uh, listening to R and B music much more than much more than show tunes. And then I studied classical piano, and then I worked for a summer down in Nashville. So I got I learned gospel and uh, and uh, country and folk uh, that particular summer. Uh, and then I would uh, I was a big uh, lover of uh, Broadway show tunes. And so with my favorite year, I thought I really want to do a show tune musical about the making of a show. And that became my, my favorite year. And uh, uh, since moving to New York, uh, I was listening to a lot of world music. And I think that that really came into play uh, with Once in this Island. And uh, e- even with Ragtime, one of my jobs in college was uh, I played for a ragtime band on the weekends. Uh, and we did the uh, the music of America from uh, 1890 to 1920. So in a certain way, my college gig was actually my research for the show Ragtime. I just didn't realize that at, <laughs> at the point. So I, I, have, I have many different kinds of music that I love. And uh, eventually I try to we, – we both try to find vehicles that not only tell great stories but sort of give voice to all of these uh, musical interests that we you, have. You mentioned Once on this Island and My Favorite Year. How did Those were early on, early 1990s. Mm-hmm. How did those two shows – how did you get involved in them? How did they gel for you? Um, we – 
came up with the ideas for the shows. I found the book that, um, you know, I, I, I go through the bookstore regularly and Apparently read a lot. Read and a lot, yeah. I read a lot, and, and I look for, you know, things that I think might become musicals. I mean, it, there was a point when it was difficult for me to read just for pleasure. Mm-hmm. Now I've, I'm back to reading for pleasure again, and I, I'm not so concerned with, you know, is this going to make a musical? But, um, uh, yeah, um, I found the book for Once on this Island in a, in a you know, in a used bookshelf, and... Um, I um, and my favorite year was something that we decided to might make a a, a good show and and went after getting the rights and trying to get it produced and we tend to self generate our projects because I think it's very hard to be given something you know to be brought an idea that you didn't think of first and you know obviously we did Susical we did. Um, uh, Ragtime, which were brought to us by producers. Um, a man of no importance, Terrence McNally, found that idea and brought it to us. Um, but a lot of times, you know, it, it just comes from some some something inside that, that um, you know, says, I'm ready to write this kind of a show. I'm ready to explore this kind of material. And I think as you grow up as a person, you know, our, 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 our shows have grown up as well. The story on Ragtime is that you actually – were part of a competition, yeah, and, and it was a song. We had to like submit samples. Yeah. We, so what, we, what was that it, all it was, about? It was it's pretty so wild. unusual. Well, I'll yeah. tell you. I'll tell you. Our, what we heard it was all about was that the producer <laughs> Garth Drabinsky, uh had to choose a creative team for this project that he had uh, optioned from E.L. Doctorow, and he didn't quite know what to do uh, or how to go about that. And E.L. Doctorow also had approval rights over the creative team. So uh, I think that what we heard was that Garth spoke with Hal Prince and said, um, you know, how how should I go about finding the creative team? What would you suggest? And Hal said, well, you know, you uh, you could ask them to audition. Now, what he meant by that was, you know, you go to Candor and Ebb or you go to somebody that you know and you say, would you do a couple of songs on spec and see, you know, if it's the right thing. But Garth, what Garth did instead was I think he went to eight or nine different teams and asked everybody to audition. So it was it was a bake-off. And um, <laughs> we just, to, to this day, we don't know who those other people were and we don't want to know. But songs that you wrote for that ended up in the show? And yeah. You that in fairly songs. short order? Three, yeah. three of the four songs. Mm-hmm. And, and it was actually uh, the opening number, Ragtime, uh, and, and the first notes uh, that I wrote for that are this theme. Uh. And then this little chromatic theme came. Right there, uh, that that was a music, a music first song, and right there, uh, I said to Lynn, I said, "No, that's where the word ragtime goes," and and I, <laughs> I didn't know anything else about what the the song was going to be, and we actually. Uh, wrote it very quickly because at the at the time I was actually uh, in London with uh, Once in the Silent, put, trying to uh, have the production happen in the West End. Uh, Lynn was getting ready uh, for Christmas Carol. There was a lot of stuff going on, and then we had the opportunity to write four songs for Ragtime, and uh, it seemed the absolute perfect uh, idea for a show for us. Although, uh, and, and, and to tell you the truth, I was actually grateful that there was you know this song songwriting derby. Uh, because I don't think uh, a producer would have thought that Lynn and I w- would have been the, the right writers for that particular show because everything we had written up to that point uh, tended to be very small scale and it was obvious that Ragtime was a piece that was going to be produced on a grand scale. Uh, this was uh, Garth Drabinsky coming off of his uh, incredibly huge and lavish production, wonderful production of Showboat. And uh, so uh, we knew that we could 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 write the that that particular score so uh the opportunity to write those four songs on spec was terrific so it was the opening number uh the end of act one till we reached that day and a song called gliding which is uh sort of an eastern european waltz for the character of of tata they were the three songs do you think about scale when you're writing because of course your two most recent shows have both been in the Mitzi Newhouse right. 300 seat theater right. at Lincoln Center my favorite year was on the big Vivian Beaumont stage of course Ragtime is one of the 
largest scale productions in recent years right. and some question whether we'll ever see shows oh. <laughs> that big again. You may not, you may not, but you will see Ragtime in a different incarnation. And I wanted to yeah. ask you about yeah. that because there was a new version that was done in London and yes. now is going to be in a couple of months, uh, I believe in May, Mill. at the Paper Mill yeah. Playhouse. It's Talk fun. about how that show has changed. Well, you know, after the, after the Broadway Broadway production of it, um, I think the show got lumbered with, with you know, a sort of perception, oh, that unproducible show. Sort you of know? like the big Sweeney Todd. Uh-huh. It took years to realize right. you and could then do Teeny Todd. Teeny Todd, right. yes. <laughs> so, so we have mini ragtime. It's not, it's not small uh, exactly, but it's, it doesn't have the big sets and, you know, the big sort of uh, huge epic quality of the production itself. The the text is the same, the songs are the same, but what um, the director Stafford Arima did in London, and which he will recreate uh, uh, in at the paper mill, is um, it's a minimalist production, and it's quite beautiful and quite extraordinary, and the story and the music and everything take center stage as opposed to the real model T Ford and the you know the the uh, the real huge balconies and the the fireworks and you know all the stuff that the original production had this doesn't have that but it has you know the great score and the great uh, voices and and the great story um, and it's it's amazing and and has given a uh, tremendous new life to the show it's being done everywhere now in a in a in a much more um, you know, pared down kind of way. So it's 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 great. When friends of mine ask you, well, what was the production like? I said it's sort of like Nicol- Nicholas Nickleby on the set of Copenhagen. <laughs> That's actually <laughs> sort of says what you, you can imagine, you can imagine that, that. because it's a very it's a smaller uh, but a very ensemble oriented production uh, on actually a quite modern set uh, with with period costumes and uh, the, the original Broadway production of. Uh, Ragtime had, uh, I believe, 53 actors and 28 in the orchestra. So this is uh, about 29 actors and uh, Still I believe... Still not small. No, not no, small. no. But, but, and about 19 in the orchestra. Right. So uh, because we wanted to make sure that the... That the music uh, still had a sense of scope to it, but it, but sort of matched the, the the new size of the cast. So so there's more doubling, uh, and it's more ensemble in in nature. But in a certain way, uh, by stripping a, a lot of the visual opulence, uh, it, it actually focuses the show, I think, on the dramatic action and on the score. I mean, uh, in, in London uh, at the Pic- Piccadilly Theatre, we had the orchestra actually on stage as part of the set, so you were very aware of. The musicians, and uh, I, I think at the end of that particular show, uh, there was always at every performance uh, uh, a, a, a huge ovation for the orchestra. I think probably f- uh, more so at that production than any uh, production of, of mine that I've witnessed. And I think it's because uh, the the audience was really aware of the contribution of those musicians. I just, in, in answer to the the question preceding the discussion about ragtime, I just wanted to say that. Um, in terms of the size of productions, that we, we don't really think about the size. We just let the show unfold in its writing. And eventually, when we get to the point of, of getting it produced, we generally uh, we generally have a feeling of the size of the show, but it's dictated by the subject matter, really not our decision. We don't sit down to write a big show or a little show. We sit down to write a show based on you know beautiful material, and if it ends up being something uh, small and intimate, that's fabulous. you know. And if it ends up to be epic... That's great, too. But, you know, it's really kind of dictated. You know, ragtime can only be done in a certain size be- because there are three different worlds. You know, there are... Yeah, you can't do it with five actors. You can't do it with... No. Although maybe some genius will come up with a way to do that. But, you know, there is the world of, uh, of uh, you know, the upper-class white world, the immigrant world, and the world of Harlem. And, and you know, you need people to represent those three groups. So, well, Ragtime is a big, epic show. Dessa Rose is a very intense, dramatic show with conflicts, uh, once on this island has its own character. Then there's Susical. Mm-hmm. How yeah. does that come into your, your, your work? Well, it's <laughs> it's interesting. Different. The opportunity to do Susical came up right, right after uh, Ragtime. And we had been working on Ragtime uh, since, the, I, I believe, the end of the summer of 94, when, when we wrote those first uh, couple of songs uh, on, on demo. And uh, it finally reached Broadway in January of 98. So we had been working on, on Ragtime, uh, and since it had had a world premiere in Toronto and then in Los Angeles, 
And uh, it was a very dramatic and meaty show. And after that, uh, I personally thought it would be great to do a comedy. So we had the opportunity to to do Susicle, which is also based on uh, incredible uh, American literature, although a totally different flavor. And 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 uh, I said I, I I convinced Lynn to do that one because uh, I, I personally wanted to do something where I could create this wild musical world that uh, wasn't really rooted in any particular time or place. And uh, all of the R and B stuff that I loved as a kid growing up that I could never seem to find another vehicle. Uh, I, I knew I'd be be able to do a lot of that, you know, for the Jungle of Newell and Horton the Elephant. And uh, I just thought musically it could be a really wild and and fun piece. That that piece is an interesting one. It was you know the, you know the famous rocky road of of certain Broadway shows, and you know we certainly had the rocky road there. But um, the show has uh, has now resurrected, and is apparently um, being performed all across America in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of productions. Um, people have discovered that the show itself is quite wonderful and always was quite wonderful. It's just that it had a lot of problems attached to it during the course of coming from out of town onto Broadway, the problems with production and problems with this and that. And, you know, I'm not going to get into all of it, but, um, you know, it's a lovely show. It's and it's and it was very dear to us because we love the source material so much. Well, Stephen, you said you had to convince Lynn. Lynn, that well, I just didn't makes me feel you were somewhat reticent. To do I was it. a little reticent only because I have such respect for the for the Seuss. Uh, the Dr. Seuss canon. I grew up on it. I know knew a lot of them by heart before we even began began working on it. So, you know, it's a little scary when you're taking rather sacred source material and mm. and and doing something with it. And you know, interesting. The, you're not saying that about El Doctoro. <laughs> well, you know, the thing with El Doctoro is there's such a great story inherent there. You could you you just it was just picking the the the, the main who were the main characters of all the many. With Dr. Seuss, it's, it's a bunch of disconnected stories. Right. And so you know to. Plot, the, plot is not really Dr. Seuss's no, strong point. They're just you know? little elements, yeah. and so it really took some some doing to try and figure out how to make a dramatic stage piece out of this. We could have done a review, you know, but we really weren't interested in that. So what we, you know, just it was scary actually to try and think what what is the what is the framework, what is the dramatic, uh, who are the main characters out of forty or fifty books that he wrote, um, and I think we did a pretty good job of it. But it was a little daunting to begin with, you know, and. Um, you know, when we found the Horton stories, which are, are the sort of the core, I think, the most dramatic and the, the highest profile stories of, of everything he wrote, um, they became the, the, the skeleton on which the whole show was based. Without going into the travails of the show, I remember when the show was being workshopped in Toronto. And in mm-hmm. fact, I was living near Toronto at that time, yeah. and I tried to get in. It was like the workshop was the hottest ticket in town. It was the town. hottest it ticket was, in it, town. It, it, it was amazing. And there, the, the, the workshop was actually very simply done. It was just basically actors in jeans with colored T-shirts using little strips of material, mops, a ladder, and a slide. <laughs> and some feathers and, stuck and, in their belts. And you in know? a certain way, I think, <laughs> I think maybe the show should have stayed, stayed that way. Uh, since that, that workshop, uh, the, the Broadway production was actually quite large and brassy, and uh, you know, you know, there's a lot of stuff on the stage. And I don't know that that uh, really supported sort of the childlike quality uh, that was inherent in the workshop, uh, so it's it's going to be interesting to see uh, you know other people's uh, takes on this. I'm, I'm actually seeing a, a production of Susicle in Chappaqua, New York, on April Fool's Day this year. It's a, a, a good friend of mine. Uh, her son is uh, in, in a uh, class production, so it'll be the first time that I'll see Susicle presented by uh, children. Which, and I'm really looking forward to that. Well, it's interesting that you mention that because. Very often now I see shows and I do think to myself, wow, we're not going to see this at the local high school. And yet you are writing shows which absolutely are entering that canon yeah. and then become – take on a life because once on this island, it's you know, with everywhere. multiracial casts yeah. Yeah. completely and it's being yeah. done. And in, all white casts and all female casts, and, weirdly and enough. And ragtime. Yeah. What, what's it like to go out and see that work? I, I, you know, I think and it, you, there was a comment that, you know, Lucky Stiff came yeah. back even at the York as a musical right. in Mufti. It's, and Mufti. It's, 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 it's thrilling. My, my, my mom actually just sent me a, a little clipping from the local Pittsburgh paper and this uh spring there are six productions of susicle uh being done in my hometown and uh the next runner-up is oklahoma with five <laughs> and it's 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 wonderful uh that the shows are uh 
re- reaching you know uh, many different audiences. And I actually got to see my favorite year in the auditorium uh, of my high school uh, back home. And my favorite year is a, a show about uh, a, a young man who wants to be a writer and, and is passionate about that. And I actually saw my favorite year in the auditorium where I wrote my first musical and had, had it produced when I was 14. The, so, I mean, it was a wonderful experience seeing that. The most moving thing about seeing your, your shows done in their afterlife, so to speak, is when kids do them because it is so pure. It's mm. absolutely pure and joyous, and they can do no wrong. You know, it, it's just... Uh, it's an extraordinary gift, really, to when you, when you, when you witness, you know, how they come at your material and and how hard they try and how inspired they are by it sometimes. And um, it's it's really great. I saw I saw an NYU production of Susicle not too long ago, where I just I literally was on the floor because you had to sit on the floor and you had to participate. You had to draw the clovers on the floor with chalk and you, they, the butter battle was done with toilet plungers as guns and they shot balloons and rubber bands and paper clips all around and it was inspired and fantastic and I just came out on such a, such a glorious high of, of, of knowing that, um, you know, my work can be done in all kinds of ways and and um, that it's inspiring young people to, to do theater. It's it's very, very wonderful. What sort of advice would you give to young people who might want to pursue a career in the theater? Go for it. I would tell them, get a day job and then go for it. <laughs> yeah. That would be my advice. It's a two-part. Yeah, or, or, yeah. or for me, a night job. <laughs> yeah, yeah get something that will help job. you make money. And, How about and for really young people in terms of education? Does going to, to college oh, help uh, or just I'm get not, out there and do it? Um, I think I, I think everybody should go to college and 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 um, get an education for sure. But I I think that you can do a lot while you're in college mm-hmm. and in your spare time and on your weekends and nights. And if you're passionate about writing or acting, you can certainly study and learn those things as well as you know getting a liberal arts education, which I think everybody should have. I, I think it's really wonderful also to study the other arts. You know, I think if, if you really want to be a composer, especially a composer for the theater, I think that you really have to study playwriting, uh, dramatic literature, uh, Everything musical, orchestration, uh, counterpoint. Uh, I also think it's great to like take a painting class or learn something about vis- the visual arts because uh, in the theater, there are all, all of the arts and disciplines are interconnected. And I just think uh, just submerge yourself and learn uh, as much as you can, not only about what you do, but what your collaborators do. Before we wrap up, we're now, as as this is being aired, Desiree has just opened um, is there something else that Lynn that you're pulling off the bookshelf, or something else that <laughs> that we know know is starting to to gestate? Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and is that as much as you're willing to tell us? We have we have actually two projects gestating. Um, I can talk ever so slightly about both of them um, because they've both one we've just finished a workshop at Lincoln Center not too long ago um and it's actually not even a it's not a book musical it's a it's a um a pair of song cycles um that one was a was a um one is based on a, a farmer's journal from 1857 uh that somebody brought to my attention a friend of mine brought to my attention um i found it very moving very spare uh it's and and so we wrote a song cycle based on this farmer's Diary. Uh, it's twelve months in the life of a farmer and his wife, and it's uh, written for two characters, two you know, um, two singers, and it's gorgeous. Uh, and the other piece is based on my father's photographs of New York. He was a photographer and took pictures of New York in the fifties, forties, thereabouts. And um, he passed away not too long ago, leaving this humongous um, bunch of photos in my mother's home. And it suddenly occurred to me that it might be a wonderful companion piece for the Farmer's Journal. Um, so there's one piece about a farmer's life and one piece inspired by my father's photographs. And um, the whole piece as a whole is called Legacy. Uh, and it's what people leave behind for others to find and interpret and react to. And and um, so that's one thing that we're working on, which is, is uh, again, breaking a little bit of new ground for the two of us, you know, as writers. Um, and, and it's really fun to have a, a, a pastoral piece from the 1800s uh, with a, a very urban piece, you know, for, from from this century. Yeah. And then the other piece is based on a book called The Glorious Ones by Francine Prose, who's a wonderful um, uh, writer. Um, and 
uh, I optioned this book, I believe, in, I want to say, 1982, maybe, with um, someone that I was collaborating with at the time who's remained a very dear friend of mine, a woman named Margaret Pine. She brought the book to my attention. We worked on it together, could never solve its problems, put it aside. I went on to begin working with Stephen, um, and many years later, looking around for a new project, I remembered the glorious ones and went back to my friend Margaret and said, would you mind if we worked on this? And she didn't mind. So we re-optioned the book and, and have been trying to solve its problems ever since. And, and very recently, um, we finally cracked that nut. So how many years is that, that we've been <laughs> gestating yeah. 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 this weird yeah. project? But it's quite wonderful. Um, we we uh, I think we began writing it in 92, and we actually did a reading in 93 at Lincoln Center. Uh, w- wonderful cast. Uh, but but uh, reapproaching it, I think I think one of the the keys was uh, we we met with Francine Prose, the original author, uh, to play her music, uh, and she was incredibly moved and excited by the music, and had a lot of notions about uh, the characters and also uh, what her process was when she was originally writing writing the book. And I think a lot of these ideas actually sparked things in us, which gave she us was, the she courage was the to, to, to tackle go, it again. Yeah, to kind of go back into it and and give us a little help with how to approach the subject matter. So we're kind of excited about that. And and then there are a couple other things that I can't talk about. Okay. So. Oh, I, I, I should tell your your, uh, your listeners, though, if anybody's in the New York City area on April 4th, which is a Monday, uh, we're doing a, a concert at Merkin Concert Hall of, of Lynn's and my uh, work. And it's a, it's a retrospective. Uh, and we have a, a lot of the original performers uh, that performed many of the songs uh, uh, will we'll be present, uh, people from Once on this Island, from Ragtime. And we're also premiering uh, some songs from, from both of the new projects. And, so. of course, let's not forget Dessa Rose, which is running yeah. at the Mitzi yes. Newhouse, Newhouse, Newhouse Theater at Lincoln Center here in New York. <laughs> Stephen Flaherty, composer, Lynn Ahrens, librettist and lyric writer. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank it's you been a very pleasure. much. It's great. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding everyone that these programs, as well as all of the educational and media projects at the American Theatre Wing, are available on demand for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you. <laughs>